All right. Um, my family has been sick the past three weeks. I've, I'm kind of recovering, but it's probably going to be a less intense sermon today. Um, yeah. I know. I know. I know. Um, unless, you know, the Spirit comes upon me. And I'm just... Ah! <laughs> um, but I do want to thank um, thank you guys for praying for me. Those of you guys who are praying for me and my family, we do appreciate that. Okay, all right. So today um, we are carrying on. We've got um, slides for you today. I realized that um, this is this is a very teaching heavy sermon series. There's a lot of teaching, a lot of information, and that's by design. And um, you know, some sermons, what we're doing is we're focusing on like one truth or two truths and we're just trying to pound them deep into our hearts, right? And, and I, love, I love doing that. But some sermon series are really more teaching-based and it's going to feel a little bit more like a class. And I'll try and make it a, a you know, more exciting class, hopefully, than, than some of your classes. Um, but the point here is that what you, we need is we need a framework to understand the kingdom of God. And that's what we're trying to understand. That's why we're going through the seven mountains of culture. We talked about this last week. We did an introduction to this. Um, today is going to be part one on family, on understanding the kingdom um, in the family system. Okay, um, before we launch into that, though, we're going to have a short news segment. So if we go to the next slide. Um, there are three bills up for votes very soon in the California State Assembly. And I, I wanted to run through them. I put a post on my Facebook wall. I just um, forwarded something from Bill Johnson at Bethel. But um, I am super concerned about these state bills, and I think you should be too. Um, Assembly Bill 2119 bans foster care children from receiving any counseling, encouraging them to embrace their biological gender if they question it. It also mandates gender-affirming health care, which includes sex change surgeries and puberty-blocking drugs. Now, I, I think this is a terrible idea, this idea that children should be responsible for making decisions about their sex. Um, and I, I included some statistics here. Now, there is a 40% suicide rate in the transgender community. Okay, This is the highest suicide rate among any people groups um, for all time, as far as I know. It, it is comparable. To, it's the same suicide rate as Jews living in concentration camps in Nazi Germany. They had a 40% suicide rate. That is the same suicide rate as in the transgender community. And that's whether it's pre-conversion or post-conversion, meaning if you, do, um, if you do convert to the opposite sex, um, there's no decline in that suicide rate. It's, 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 it's a demonic stronghold. If I could just be blunt about it, okay? Why? Because I know people. I have a very close friend who received major deliverance in her life, and she tried to commit suicide three times. She got radically saved. She got delivered, and she's living free as a woman. She, this, her first words out of her mouth were, I am a boy. She grew up believing she was a boy. She struggled with her whole life. She dated girls in high school, and she got radically saved and delivered. So I don't say this as a, as a matter of, of academia. I say this because I have personal experience. I know people who have been set free in this way. And this is something that our culture has now completely turned against, at least in the radical you know, left part of our, of our politics. It's completely turned against this. 80% of children with gender dysphoria eventually grow out of it. What does that mean? That means 80% of children who, at, you know, a lot of times children... They're, they're, very in, they're very easily influenced by different things. So there are many 
biological males who grow up in, in their childhood, they might feel like I might be a female. Maybe I'm supposed to be a female. And what they find is 80% of those who struggle with it end up growing out of it. But this type of legislation, what it does is it says that we want these kids to make life-altering decisions about their sex. And we don't want anybody counseling them that they could be their biological gender. Does that make sense? I, I think this is a really evil and nefarious thing, um, especially for the kids that are caught you know, in, in foster care. These are kids who do not have their biological parents raising them. Um, and these are, these are a, lot of, a lot of these kids are really broken, and, and my heart goes out to them, but this is not the way to help them. But this is part of an, an ongoing trend. If you look at Assembly Bill 2943, this makes it unlawful for any person to sell books, counseling services, or anything else that helps someone overcome unwanted same-sex attraction or gender identity confusion. As a result, it could be a violation if a pastor encourages a congregate to visit the church bookstore to purchase books that will help people address sexual issues, perhaps including the Bible itself, which teaches about the importance of sexual purity within the confines of marriage between a man or a woman. This is a, this is a serious issue, church. Um, there's one last bill, Assembly Bill 1779, next slide. This bill outlaws licensed counselors from providing counseling to change unwanted sexual desires for adults who are under a conserver, excuse me, conservatorship or guardianship. Currently, this type of counseling is already illegal for those under 18. It is considered harmful and abusive to help someone change their sexual desires as part of a nationwide move to outlaw this type of counseling. Okay, we can see where all of these bills are coming from. The LGBT caucus in our state assembly is extremely strong and influential because we are in the most liberal state in the union. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, don't, this, this entire series is going to be about how are we to understand these things from a biblical and from a kingdom point of view. I want to encourage you, don't just take my word for it investigate these things. Learn about them. There's so much information out there right now. But if, if you only hear what's coming to you, what you're probably going to hear is a lot from the, from the other side and a little bit from me. <laughs> okay? I want to encourage you. You have to research. You have to find these things out because this entire series is about how the places of influence in our culture have become controlled by forces that for the most part are hostile to traditional and biblical thinking. Does that make sense? You can't get this information unless you really go looking for it. So unless I want to devote you know, an entire series to going through this in depth, you know, I'm not going to be able to educate you and help you understand it in depth. But what I want to encourage you to do is that the resources are really out there. The resources are out there. And I want to encourage you to, to, to seek the truth. We don't ever have to be afraid of the truth as Christians. Okay, we don't ever have to be afraid of praying the prayer, Lord, I just pray, would you lead me to truth to understand these issues? And I understand that same-sex attraction these days has become maybe the most controversial issue in our culture today, especially for those of us who are on the more conservative side of the spectrum. But I'll just tell you this, I've worked with so many people who've struggled with these issues over the years, and I will say I know there is freedom in Jesus. I know there is freedom. This is... It, it's only in a religion where God doesn't actually do anything, right, that we talk about people can't be changed. No, no, no. God, this is what God does. He radically transforms people. This is just one small area. God transforms people in all sorts of different areas. And secondly, I want to say this. 
large parts of the church are sleeping, spiritually sleeping through the battle that could make it illegal to be an evangelical Christian in the next generation. That's the state that we're in today. These bills are coming up for vote in our California State Assembly. I do not know the likelihood that they will pass. I really hope it's very unlikely. Um, But I want to encourage you. I'm going to give you some information at the end. Would you consider contacting your state assemblyman um, and lodging your disapproval and just say, hey, I do not, I, I want to strenuously object to these bills. Let your voice be heard. The reality is, you know, I, I, I tell this to, to some of our leaders, there's twice as many, you know, political conservatives as there are liberals in our nation. Those who self-identify as conservatives, liberals, twice as many conservatives. The difference, though, is that conservatives, for the most part, are very quiet. <laughs> We're very quiet. We, don't, we just want to mind our own business and do our own things. But I want to say there's, a, there's an element where we have to step into the gap and start to say, no, this is not okay. This is not okay. All right. Um, for our next, um, I, I just want to do a review a little bit of what we talked about last week because it's going to provide um, a framework for this entire series, okay? The reason why we're talking about the seven mountains culture, why discipling culture is an, an essential aspect of the Christian mandate. For one reason, many Christians lose their passion after college because they don't know how to seek the kingdom at their workplace. Right? We talked about how the kingdom of God is bigger than just the church organization. But what happens to a lot of Christians is because they don't know, how, Lord, how do I serve you when I'm working 40 to 50 hours a week at this job? How do I seek your kingdom in this place? They don't know how to do that. And so what happens is they try and just go to church. Their understanding of what it means to seek the kingdom is to go to church and maybe try and help out at church. But really what they're doing is often they're forfeiting the very call that's on their lives, meaning they're the ones that have the the ability and the potential to bring the kingdom of God into their workplace. They have the ability to bring the kingdom into their friendship groups. They have the ability to bring the kingdom, you know, into their industry, and yet they don't they don't feel like that's what they're supposed to. They don't know that's what they're supposed to. They have no idea how they could do anything like that. That's what this series is about. It's helping us to understand what the kingdom looks like in all of these different areas of culture, um, and not just in the church, okay? And here's the, here's the core issue. The kingdom that we serve is primarily spiritual, okay? K- Jesus said the kingdom is within us. The kingdom of God is the place where Jesus rules, okay? In this age, it's primarily a spiritual kingdom, It's a spiritual kingdom, and it will be made into a physical manifest kingdom when Jesus returns again. Making sense? Okay. Because it's a spiritual kingdom, we are in a spiritual war. We're not saying go kill the Muslims, okay? We're not saying go attack, you know, the Buddhists. No, that's not what we're saying. We we love people, but we wage war against demonic arguments and ideologies. Okay, we wage war against demonic arguments and ideologies. We talked about how belief in evil ideology is what creates human suffering. Uh, let me say that one again. Okay, Belief in evil ideology creates human suffering. And we talked about, is it a coincidence that Hitler just wanted to kill all the Jews? Right? Was that a coincidence that Stalin just felt like killing a bunch of Jews too? No, there's a spiritual element to this. These are the clashing of kingdoms, right? And what we see is that, you know, in the 20th century, 20th century is the story of how socialism almost destroyed the earth. 
Thank God it did not destroy the earth, right? Why? Largely because of Christian counter-influence, okay? Christianity is the best thing that has ever happened to people, okay, to mankind. It is the best thing that's ever happened to mankind. We are living in the most prosperous, wealthy, you know, peaceful era of human history. And I, look, it's because of Christianity. It's because of Christianity. It's because of this root of morality, this foundation of morality in our culture has given us all of this prosperity, but we're in an ideological war in our day and in our time. And that question is now being questioned. That assumption is now being questioned, right? Really, is it Christianity? Isn't it education? Isn't it, you know, that, you know, we just got richer? Isn't it that all these other things have made us the way we are now? And um, we're going to get into a lot of that, you know, that false ideology in a little bit. Um, but we have to understand this is, this is a spiritual and a real war that we're in, and we're battling for this. And it's a real battle, and there's real lives um, that are at stake both now and in eternity. And I made the point how we are living in the greatest battle, the greatest war in the history of the world. It's happening all around us, but it's spiritual. And if we can't see it, then we can't engage with it. But if we can see it, if God opens up our eyes and he opens up our ears and he puts his burden in our hearts, then what happens is we find calling in the midst of it. We find the calling for our lives. We find a, we find a place in what God wants to do on the earth. And I made it really clear, our enemy in this culture is secular humanism. Um, you'll be hearing a lot about secular humanism over the next three months. God bless us. And it's really important because you have to be able to discern it. This, the biggest problem is Christians don't know what they're fighting against. They have no idea why they struggle to maintain passion in their lives. They have no idea why they can't hold together relationships. They don't understand why their conviction in God wavers and falls and goes up. Why? Because they don't understand how much of a hold secular humanism as an ideology has on their hearts. These are demonic strongholds that are built into our hearts because we've, been grow we've grown up in a, in a humanistic culture, right? So when we talk about, hey, my friend got miraculously healed yesterday, and you're like, yeah, right, dude. That's your humanism talking, right? I could tell you so many stories about all the miracles I've heard in my life, but to the degree that secular humanism has a hold on your heart, you'll just dismiss them all. You won't believe any of them. Right? Why? Because in your framework, the way that you think, you think that's impossible. Never mind the entire Bible talks about miracles over and over and over and over and over again. Right? Never mind that many of us in this room have seen God move miraculously in different ways. But all of those testimonies become, you know, they, they, they get in the way. Why? Because our, the humanism, our humanistic beliefs are stronger. Does that make sense? The entire story of Jesus is a story about a man who died and rose again. That's how the whole thing took off. And people were like, dude, sorry, dead people don't rise again. And these guys were like, no, they do, right? I literally saw it with my own eyes, right? That's the idea that you'll be my witnesses, right? You're the witness. You're the ones who saw me rise from the dead. And so it, guess what? That truth is just as controversial today as it was 2,000 years ago. And brothers and sisters, if we're going to follow Jesus, then number one, we have to 
see things like miracles. We have to have our eyes open. That's why Paul prays. He says, oh, I pray that your eyes, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know the hope of his calling, right? That you would know the hope. Why? Because if our eyes, our spiritual eyes are darkened, then we see, we see no calling in life. I read a stat the other day that said something like, in the past 10 years, youth suicide rates are up 70%. Unbelievable, right? But I think a lot of it has to do with youth in this generation. They're, they're not given a hope, right? They're not given a hope. Where, where's the hope? Without our, without our foundation of Christianity, without the hope that we have that we could live forever, and not just live forever, but live forever in a perfect paradise, in the one that God designed and created from the beginning. Right? This is the hope that we have in Christ. But without Christ, then there is no hope. Then whoever cheats the most wins. Right? Whoever steals and oppresses the most, they're the winners in this, in this life. That's a pretty terrible hope. Right? But we have a real hope that transcends the lives that we live. We think there's more to this world. Amen. All right. And we talked about this verse. And it says this, for though we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not weapons of the world. Instead, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We tear down arguments and every presumption set up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. So this is what we do, brothers and sisters. If you're actively engaged in, in spiritual warfare... What you're doing is you're fighting for ideas. And you have to fight for them. I don't believe in the, oh yeah, I, I, I love Jesus and me and Jesus, we do our thing and you can do whatever you want and that's cool. That tells me that you have no conviction in your life. Okay? Conviction means that I, I believe that this is truth and this truth has the power to make people free. Right? And the truth is universal. It applies to me and it applies to you. It's hope for me and it's brought freedom to me so I know it can bring freedom to you. So if we're engaging in effective spiritual warfare, then we're fighting vigilantly for good ideas, for right truths. It doesn't mean we're fighting against people. We don't harbor bitterness against people. We don't hate people, right? But we hate the ideas that keep people in bondage. Am I making sense? And this is exactly what we see in the lives of Jesus and the apostles, right? That they were fighting vigorously for the truth, right? That Jesus was the real King of kings and the Lord of lords, right? That he really did rise from the dead, right? That God is real and he does have a wonderful plan for our lives and he does care about us and he wants us to live forever. These are truths that are real and have power to save. Okay, that was all review. Amen. So we're going to go into family today. Um, <laughs> next slide. Let's look at some family statistics. Okay. About 40% of marriages end in divorce today. Okay. Now, this is a controversial stat. It's hard to find good numbers on, mar on divorce rates. Okay. This is... This is the number that I trust the most, okay? It might be a little bit higher, might be a little bit lower, um, but I think 40% is, is uh, about right, okay? That rate was 25% in 1960. Only 69% of kids live with two parents. In 1960, that was 
About 32% of adults now are unmarried. Okay, About one in three adults now are unmarried. In 1950, that was 23%. Okay. Married couples make up 68% of all families with children. Okay, in, in 1950, that was 93%. And today, an average household has 2.5 people in it, um, versus in 1960, it was 3.3 people. So what have we seen? There were bigger families back then, and now the families have, have gotten smaller, right? Okay, you'll notice I've contrasted all these stats with, uh, with around 1960, and there's a good reason for that. A lot of stuff happened in the 60s. You cannot understand American culture unless you understand what happened in the 1960s. Okay? Look at, look at all this stuff that happened in the 1960s. It's crazy. Okay? We had the Vietnam War. We had the free speech movement. We had the civil rights movement. We had the assassination of Martin Luther King. We had the rise of the black power movement, second wave feminism, drug movement, free love movement. Holy cow. We had LBJ and the war on poverty. Now, this is just a lot of, 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 you know, titles, right? I know all of those movements. So to me, I'm like, oh, my gosh, that all happened in the 60s. But for you guys, it might be like, what the heck does all that mean? 1960s was a tidal wave of counterculture. What do I mean? I mean that there was a move in the 1960s to question the traditions and the customs of America's past. And the idea was America has always been like this and valued these things and cherished these truths but what if all those things have been wrong what if all those things are dumb how do we know how can we know and what happened was there was this counterculture that developed it had already been developing throughout you know the 30s 40s 50s but in the 60s they started to lead movements okay now I'm going to say this, not all of these movements were bad, right? We look at the civil rights movement, I'm pretty happy that the civil rights movement happened, right? It was led by Christians for the most part, right? I'm very happy with, with civil rights movement. But we have to understand that in a lot of these, like even like the free speech movement, okay, so I went to Berkeley, and uh, if you go to Berkeley, all they talk to you about is free speech movement, right? It's like they've got like little mementos up everywhere, and like, oh, we're the best school ever. We're the home of the free speech movement, right? Now, here's the thing. The free speech movement was in some ways a very good movement. The idea was this. Students wanted to pass out literature and recruit people to help out in the civil rights movement. And what happened was that the school administration said, no, you're not allowed to pass out political you know, pamphlets and whatnot on the school. The school is just for learning stuff. Okay, We don't want to get all political. And the students basically revolted. What they did was they, you know, they... Got a, this one kid got on top of a car and started making these speeches. And pretty soon, at, at campus, college campuses all around the world, they were having these, these, these movements of students saying, we have the right, right to speak up. Right? We have the right to speak out on these issues that we're convicted about, that we're passionate about. Okay? That in itself is not such a bad thing. Right? I, I'm, I'm for a lot of what happened in the free speech movement, the problem was it was the spirit of the movement itself. The spirit of the movement was one that rejected the wisdom of tradition. Does that make sense? And this is very common. What happens with the rebellious kid? Guess what? No kid starts off wanting to be rebellious. Right? It's not like kid wakes up and oh, man, I just feel like being rebellious. Yeah. Screw you, Dad. Right? Right? That's not how it works. Right? 
all children are in are are initially driven to love and honor and cherish their parents, right? But what happens inevitably because parents are all flawed people, the parent sins against the child. Sometimes the parent uses the child, right? It's like, "Dad, can I, you know, can we go can we go to the movies?" And they're like, "No." Right? Go to sleep. Right? And it's not because I have your best interest in mind. It's because I want you to go to sleep. Does that make sense? Authority, the temptation for authority is to constantly give commands that serve the interests of the authority. Right? And so when you get a lot of that, what it starts to do is it starts to foster rebellious spirit because the child starts to believe that the commands aren't coming to help the child. They're coming for the benefit of the authority. Does that make sense? That combined with offense starts to build in a spirit of rebelliousness, right? And that was with the problem with the free speech movement. What it did was it helped launch a spirit of rebelliousness. The idea was that you old people don't know better, right? And there was an entire movement that started to glorify the changing of the times, right? The Beatles, you know, you know famously said, make love, not war, right? This idea of, you know, no, we're not going to stand for the old the old ways of thinking, like that we're America and we love capitalism and, and we hate communism and that's why we're going to fight against it. No, we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to make love and that meant we're going to have sex with whoever we want, right? That was the real start in the 60s was you see this, this sexual freedom start to invade the culture and people start glorifying and say, yeah, that's great. Sleep with whoever you want, right? It's your body. You can do whatever you want. Before that, People would have been like, excuse me, right? But after the 60s, it was a completely different environment. What had happened? There was a cultural shift in the 60s, okay? It's really important that we understand this. Widespread social ten- tensions tended to flow along generational lines regarding human sexuality, women's rights, traditional modes of authority, experimentation with psychoactive drugs, and differing interpretations of the American dream, okay? That's just lifted from... Um, Wikipedia, what I want us to see there is the generational lines. It was a split along generational lines. And this is important for us to understand as believers because what religion does is it transfers wisdom from one generation to the next generation. You can't do that without religion. Once you strip religion from a culture, then what happens is truth becomes subjective rather than objective. Right? Truth becomes whatever I want it to be. That's this postmodernism that we have today. Right? Well, you can believe your truth, I got my truth, and who's to say who's right? Right? The problem there is that now there is no way to transfer the prevailing morality to the next generation. The next generation has carte blanche to redefine morality however they want to define it. Does this make sense? In fact, Scripture warns about this several times. I think I have the, the quote a little bit later, but we'll bring it up now because it's appropriate. In Malachi 4, God warns Israel, and he says, I'm going to send the spirit of Elijah to you, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the hearts of the children, and the hearts of the children to the hearts of the fathers. This idea that I, he's going to heal the generational gap. And it's really important because the generational gap is a curse. The generational gap is a judgment because what it does is it breaks a generation from all the wisdom of the generations that came before it, okay? Because here's, here's the truth. Guess what? We can learn new things in every generation. That's a good thing. But it is absolute foolishness to disregard the wisdom of all of, our, all of the generations previously that came. 
right? That's a spirit of rebellion, right? The spirit that honors the generations, what it does is it takes the wisdom and then it contributes its own peace, right? But the rebellious generation, what it does is it rejects all that came before and says, no, that's all, that's all old and that's all, we don't need that anymore. Does that make sense? This is the spirit that entered into American culture in a major way in the 60s, and we can look at, we can look at the statistics to see. So if you look at divorce rates, divorce, divorce rates, excuse me, <clears throat> what you'll see is sub-10% divorce rates until about 1965, and it skyrockets, right? And in 1980, it, it's all the way up to 22. This is out of 1,000 um, married women. It skyrockets, and it's been about up there since then. It's come down a little bit. But essentially what we saw, we, we saw divorce rates skyrocket in the 60s and the 70s. Next one. Non-marital birthrights. These are pregnancies outside of wedlock. Okay, pregnancies outside of wedlock. Right, what do we see? We see it fairly low, and then in the 60s and the 70s, it skyrockets in America. Right, what's happening? Well, there's a couple things happening. We don't have enough time to go into it in, in detail, but there's, there's strong cultural changes on what's acceptable behavior, right? Strong differences in terms of what's sexually admissible in culture, and then we also have the development and the expansion of the welfare state. The reason why I bring that up is because what it did was it enabled households to live separately. It used to be that a father, if he, you know, if he impregnated his girlfriend, he felt quite a bit of obligation to stick around and provide for the child. But with the expansion of the welfare state, what happened was that sense of obligation basically freed fathers um, to leave. And so uh, it, there's a lot that goes into that. Um, I just want this is like a really big picture, but we can see for all today, you know, the, the unwed pregnancy rates are alarmingly high in our culture, right? Alarmingly high. They're really high. Um, and that's in, in every people group at this point, okay? Next slide. What we're living with now is really a fatherless generation. I shared some of these stats on my Facebook page a couple weeks ago. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes, right, which is five times the average. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes, which is 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes, which is 20 times the average. 80% of rapists with anger problems come from fatherless homes, which is 14 times the average. And 71% of all high school dropout rates come from fatherless homes, which is nine times the average. Okay, this is the reality of what we're dealing with. I, I want to just say this lovingly right now. One of the most devastating things to our society is the destruction of strong families. It's one of the most devastating things in our society. The destruction of strong families, it manifests, it has devastating, it has devastating manifestations in all areas of culture. Right? It, di it directly contributes to major poverty, to illiteracy rates, right? to educational dropout rates, to, cr to, cr to crime, right? to drug use. It, it expands all these different areas. Why? Because if there's brokenness in the families, what happens? Children grow up broken. There's no way to prevent that. There's no way to prevent that. 
I, I've said this before. Why is God so strict about sex? Is it because he doesn't want you to have fun? Right? He wants to take away all of your fun. <laughs> no, of course not. That's not the issue. God wants you to get married and have lots of sex. Do you know that married people have way more sex than single people? That's statistics. Right? Oh, you didn't know that, some of you. Let me tell you, okay? He, the issue is not that he doesn't want you to have sex. The issue is that he wants you to have sex responsibly. Why? Because if you have it irresponsibly, what it results in is it results in broken children. This is the issue, right? This is the issue. Even with, you know, almost a million abortions a year, we still have so many children growing up in single-parent single households. And look, I just want to say this. If you come from a single-parent household, let me just speak mercy and love to you right now. The, the purpose here is not to say that something is, you know, that you did some terrible tragedy, something wrong. No, God makes all things new. Here's the story. We're all broken in major ways, right? This is the story of Christianity, that we're all sinful from birth, right? And that we all are in need of salvation. But the point is that Jesus came to show us how to live and what his standards are, right? So we have to we have to understand that he wants to give us wisdom that is to bless us. It's designed to help us. He doesn't want to take away your fun. He wants to let you have fun for eternity. That's the difference, right? I tell my kids, you can't eat the whole bag of candy today because I want you to be able to enjoy candy for the rest of your lives. That makes sense? That's the same heart of God. He does not, he's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to help you. But the, nature, but the nature of rebelliousness is that we question it, right? Do you really want that for me? I don't trust you, right? I don't trust you. And this is the generation that we're living in. Because of the fatherlessness, there is an incredible rebellious spirit on our generation. On our generation, it's, we don't trust authority. Like, no, we're, I'm going to figure it out for myself, right? And by the way, do you know I'm speaking to the, the, the least rebellious racial group in our society, right? Okay, uh, y'all like, you know, all you Koreans, you know. But even, I know that you struggle with this too, right? I know that you struggle with this too. Why? Because we live in a culture that's constantly telling us, no, you might know better than your parents, right? You might know better than them. Why would you listen to them without, without even, you know, experimenting with other things? Right? Why wouldn't you see for yourself? There's this sense in which we don't we don't want to trust the previous generations. We don't want to trust, we don't want to, you know, we don't want to surrender our sense of, of control over our own lives. And that's and that's the issue in our culture today, brothers and sisters. We have a, a culture that is struggling with this. Okay. All right, the next slide is um, abortion rates. Now, thank God abortion rates have come down. I've I've talked about this before. We've We've been warring for the past 20 years in prayer that abortion would die in America, and it is dying. Abortion is now at its lowest rate since you know numbers started being tracked in 1973. By the way, when was it when was it made legal? In the 70s, right? 60s and 70s. The same stuff started to happen. The destruction of the family really hit, um, you know, hit its stride in the 60s and in the 70s. Okay. So there you have the stats and the data to kind of understand why things are the way they are. Why are there issues of poverty in America? I'll tell you, it's because of fatherlessness. It's because of broken homes. 
Why are there issues of widespread division in American culture today? A lot is its tradition, its traditional values versus postmodern values, right? A lot of the, the struggles in our society are directly related to what we're talking about here, okay? So you need to understand what the heck does family look like in the kingdom. If you're going to fight for family values, what the heck does it look like in the kingdom? Number one, husbands and wives are submitted and devoted to God. In the kingdom, husbands and wives are first submitted and devoted to God. We're going to talk in a second about how important this one is. Number two, husbands love their wives, and wives are submitted to their husbands. We're going to need to talk about that one too. <laughs> Number three, parents are committed to each other and to their children. Okay, these are the three principles that we're going to go in depth to understand what the kingdom looks like in the place of the family. Okay, so number one, next slide. Husbands and wives are submitted and devoted to God. This is the linchpin, okay? Family does not work without this peace in place, not over the long term. Why? Because your spouse is going to be jacked up. That's why. You think you're going to find that perfect spouse? Good luck with that. Good luck. No, no, no. Let me take you to a biblical principle, okay? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, okay? Let me take you to the biblical principle. We're all broken. You ain't going to find that magical unicorn out there. That one don't exist. So let me tell you what you need for your marriage because the temptation in marriage is always to be, man, I wish she was just a little more like this. Then I would be happy, right? She just changed, right? But it don't work like that. Number one, we need God's blessings more than our spouses or our children's. We need his blessings. Guess what? He's the one with the power to radically transform our families. Why do we war for our families now? Why do we, in every prayer service, right, what do we do in every wellspring? We pray for transformation in our families. Why? Because we're building a, an understanding, a wisdom that he's the one that we seek. He's the one that has the power to transform our families. What we need is we need him to work in our families in a major way. Does that make sense? And what's, what determines whether God works in our families? Our entire last series was about this. Please, somebody tell me the answer. What's the key ingredient that you need to get God to show up in your life? Oh, yes! Yes! Ten weeks not wasted, Jesus. All right. Faith, that's it. Faith is what we need. You have to believe. You have to believe that God's really the one you need to show up in your family. If you don't believe that, I promise you, I can tell you what's going to happen. You're going to start to point the fingers at the other person, right? You're going to start to be like, if you weren't like this, then everything would be awesome, right? Or sometimes you point it at, if I wasn't like this, right? right? And, and there's truth there. There's truth there. There's some degree of truth. Yes, if you were perfect, that would help. I mean, it would. The problem is none of us ain't going to be perfect anytime soon, right? 
So we need God's help in our families. And he really helps. He really does stuff, okay? He's not some giant floating frog in the sky that doesn't do anything. He does stuff. He listens and he answers our prayers. He brings healing. Hear me. I, I, I got into pastoral ministry when I was 22 years old or something like that, right? Started to be a pastor. And I would counsel people all the time. And I would, I would tell them the truth. Right? I would tell them, yeah, this is how you get free. You just do this. And you just believe this. And if you do those things, you'll be free. And you know what happened? Freaking people didn't listen to me. Those dumb people. I'm joking. That's a joke. Okay. What I, what I, what I learned to do as I learned that I need to pray. I need to pray. It's like such a practical, small little thing, right? But you'll notice that if I'm talking, if I'm in a one-on-one conversation with you and I start trying, I, like, I want to minister to you, I will almost always say, let's pray for a second, right? Because I found that it works. It's like this magical thing, right? That when we pray, things just go better. It's amazing. I discovered this magical thing that works, right? It's not just that. I, I remember when I used to, I, when I used to reconcile my relationships because I was trying to obey God. I'm going to reconcile my relationships, God. I would have these like 20-hour talks with people, <clears throat> and we'd just be talking and arguing over and over and over and over again. And I remember that God would convict me sometimes in the middle of those talks. Dennis, you should pray right now. And I'd just be like, Hey, can we just pray real quick? And we'd pray. And I remember a couple times, right after we prayed, God gave me the revelation that fixed our relational issues. I remember that happening. So I started, I started to learn that when I run into breakdowns in talking, I need to just step back and pray. And can I tell you, it works. It actually works, right? God actually hears those prayers, okay? Now, again, it's not the prayer that's doing the work. It's the faith right? It's the faith. My faith has grown in the power of prayer because I've seen it work in my life, okay? God wants to, he- to fix and heal our families, okay? He wants to do it. The way you start growing your faith in it is to believe that he can start working on your family right now. They can start healing. He can start bringing together old relationships, right? That he can, he can undo Whatever dumb things we've done to break ourselves apart, okay? God has the power to do it. I'm not saying it's going to work every single time because man has a a part to play in this whole thing, right? But I am saying that if we ask him, he will lend his help, okay? And And his is the help that we need, okay? Put another way, marriage is a wonderful blessing and a terrible idol. Marriage sucks as an idol, right? When the most important person to you in your life is your spouse, you're going to get in trouble soon because that spouse is going to fail you one day and they're going to fail you big time because they ain't perfect, remember? They're going to have some flaw that they can't fix just because you keep telling them to, right? Like, I told you a hundred times, Dennis, clean up your socks, The problem is I don't see the socks. I'm colorblind. 
They're like camouflage socks. I'm kidding, but only half kidding. But the reality is you're going to run into you're going to run into issues with your spouse that your spouse is not able to fix. That's the secret. They're not able to. In your mind, it's so easy. You just do it. Right? The problem is you don't have the same issues they do. You don't have the same inbred fears that they do. You don't have the same insecurities they do. So when you just demand that they fix it, all you do is you drive yourselves farther apart. Am I making sense? Whose is the helper that you need? You need Jesus to provide for you in the ways that your spouse is unable to provide for you. Okay? Your spouse is not able to fill Jesus' shoes. Okay? They ain't going to fill it, so don't try and make them. Okay? You're, you ain't going to ever find that perfect boyfriend or girlfriend who's perfect in every way. Ain't going to happen. Okay? You need to learn to discern between the big faults and the little faults. Okay? And we, we have a whole series designed to help you with that, our dating series. Okay. Mature character is what is necessary for marriage. That's it in a nutshell. Okay, we talked about this, you know, a month or two ago. Right? Everybody wants to date a movie star. The question is, <laughs> the question is, can... Can any movie star stay in a long-term, healthy, thriving relationship? Now, they're all individual people, right? So we're not, you know, ruling them all out. But we are saying that being a movie star puts you in a place where you have so much temptation towards lust and pride and all sorts of stuff, it's very difficult to develop mature character as a movie star. Right? So what's my point? If you want to date a movie star, maybe there's something wrong with what you should be valuing. Maybe you're valuing stupid things. And the problem is, if you don't start valuing smart things, how the heck are you going to find somebody with which you can have a long, healthy relationship with? Am I making sense? Okay. You can read Proverbs 31. It does not describe, you know... Movie star wife. Okay? Just, that's not what she looks like. It's mature character that's important. Character is the thing that enables you to have intimate, lasting relationships. Okay? Character is the thing that enables you to shrug off minor offenses and to forgive, to reconcile when necessary. Right? Character is what you're looking for. Character is what you need to develop. Right? If, you're, if you've just finished dating five different people and they all just didn't work out, maybe the problem is you. Right? So how do you build your character? Oh, it's so glorious. You give thanks for your trials and your difficulties and your hardships. You say, God, thank you for all these things. Why? Because you're learning that you can have lasting joy and peace in the midst of them rather than constantly running from hardship and difficulty and refusing to be part of it. The temptation is that whenever we get into hardship, we just go, oh, that's hard, man. 
And the problem is, well, how the heck are you ever going to develop maturity of character? Paul said that he'd found the secret of contentment, right? That with when he had little or or nothing or much, right? Or Caesar held when they had no matter what situation he found himself in, that he could be content in that situation. Guess what? The same is true in relationships, brothers and sisters. The same is true. We have to learn to, to be joyful in our relationships. So my point is practice reconciliation now. Okay? If you never reconcile relationships now, how are you going to do that with your spouse? Answer, you can't. Practice accountability now. What do I mean? Confessing your sins one to another that you may be healed, Scripture says, right? Why don't you practice it now? No, I don't feel comfortable sharing my deepest, darkest sins. Well, when are you going to start learning how to do that, right? Practice intimacy now. Start today. Make a decision. I'm going to start practicing the tools of intimacy now so that by the time I'm ready to get married, I can actually do it. Seek inner healing. Okay, some people have the mentality, oh, only those really broken people need inner healing. That's problem because you don't realize that's you. Okay? You need inner healing. Okay? We have a whole thing. Go to, go to Ignite. Okay. Okay, and ultimately, he's the one who will right all wrongs, reward obedience, and punish disobedience at final judgment. Here's the truth. Life is 100% completely fair in eternity. That's really important. You have to keep your eyes on the final prize because you will suffer injustice in this life. And if the injustice, if you get so upset and so angry about it and you start taking it out on other people, well, it's going to be impossible for you to have a thriving marriage. Okay? There has to be a core faith deep within. Oh, Lord, you're going you're gonna to reward me for all the times I'm forgiving. Lord, you're going to reward me that even when I'm, even when I'm despised, I'm going to give love, right? Father, I, I put all my hope and my trust in you. You're the source of my joy, right? If both husband and wife do that, you're going to have a glorious marriage. I ain't going to say you ain't going to go through hard times. We all go through hard times in our marriage. But ultimately, you're going to have a glorious marriage, okay? Number two, husbands love their wives. Wives are submitted to husbands. 1 Corinthians 7, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. Okay, commitment is the power of marriage. It provides opportunity to grow in humility and capacity for love. A thriving marriage is far more about your ability to love than your spouse's ability to change. It has to do with your ability to love them as they are, not so much with their ability to change so that you can love them. Am I making sense? Okay? You can become a loving person. You can become a person that's able to love your spouse no matter what she does. Right? You could talk to Hosea. Was it Hosea? It was, right? He had to marry a prostitute. That guy, guy probably has some glorious character after a while, I got to say. Okay, what's the point here? Divorce, if you divorce without a biblically sanctioned reason and you remarry another person, from God's per- point of, from his perspective, you are committing adultery. Okay, let me be clear. You cannot go to heaven. You cannot go to heaven if you were divorced for an unbiblically sanctioned reason 
and you remarry another person. Okay, now there's a lot that goes into that theology. This should, really should be, you know, if I want to go deep into that, we have to really break that down, and we don't have the time today. Okay, if you have questions about that, you can talk to me, but understand what we're talking about. I know several people who have left their spouses, okay, not because their spouses were abusive in any major way, but simply because they fell in love with another person, right? And I, I give it to my spiritual father. My spiritual father said, you are going to go to hell if you do this. And she still did it. Okay? But I think that's a right warning. That's a right warning. From a biblical standpoint, Paul makes this clear. No adulterer will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? So what are the permitted separations? Well, in the case of adultery. Okay? So if your spouse commits adultery, then you have freedom to leave your spouse. Okay? You have freedom to leave your spouse if, if your spouse commits adultery. But if your spouse wants you back, the person who first committed adultery is still obligated to return to their spouse. Does that make sense? Again, we got to go through a long time to really get all that. Last statistic, 70% of divorces are initiated by wives. For the most part, it's wives who are wanting to leave their husbands in our culture. Why is this? Why is this? Next slide. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, we need to talk about this one because this is the truth that, it was, that was attacked in the last generation. Okay? Today we're fighting battles over issues of same-sex attraction, and the last generation was largely over issues like this. Should wives really submit to husbands? That seems awful patriarchal. And the answer is that, yeah, it is. But it's because it's of a different kingdom. In the kingdom of God, the way you go up is to go down. The way you gain authority is to humble yourself and become a servant. That's why this idea of submission is so foreign to the worldly way of thinking. You have to understand, my, when I think about my relationship with my wife, I understand that I will be judged for how I love my wife. I'm going to be judged by the Lord. So I'm trying to love her as best as I can, right? Even when she wrongs me. I know that God doesn't take that like, well, you know, she did that thing to you, so yeah, it's okay. You didn't really have to love her then. No! perfect standard is Christ loves the church, right? Does Christ, oh man, you kind of jacked up that day, so pff, forget it. I ain't listening to your prayers today, right? Does, is that the way Christ loves the church? No, Christ loves the church faithfully, right? Even though we're the ones who are jacked up all the time, right? That's why husbands must love their wives in the same way. In the kingdom, we compete to outserve one another, this idea that we're going to compete for authority in the relationship? No, it's a, that's of a wrong spirit. We're competing to outserve one another, right? That's the priority of the kingdom, right? Here, every person in the kingdom is under submission. All of us. David had to be submitted to Saul, the worst person in the world for him to be Saul was literally trying to kill him. And David was convicted, I must be submitted to him. I must, be, I must honor him in my heart and love him, and the Lord will judge between us, right? This is the same mentality that, that wives are to have to husbands. Okay, it's the same mentality. Does that mean that your husband deserves it, like he's worthy, like 
He's going to be the best master ever? No. He's going to be a jacked up master. Right? What's the point? Because your hope isn't in your husband's perfection. It's in God's blessing, your spirit of submission. Does this make sense? Now hear me, the extreme is where we go into the place, oh, that means even if your husband abuses you, you just got to take it, right? You just got to love it. No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? If your husband is abusing you, then it should go before the church and the the church should judge your husband, okay? I'm not saying that abuse should go, you know, that we should let it go. But I am saying that a general spirit of submission is right, right? In the same way, look, it's the same thing for all of us. Our fleshly desire is to rebel against all submission, right? It's to rebel against all authority. But from God's perspective, hear what God says in in Scripture. Peter talks about how slaves should submit to masters even when they mistreat them. Why? What's the point? Because God loves slavery? No. It's because God, on the day of judgment, is going to right all wrongs. He's going to right all wrongs. And those who have been mistreated and have, but have forgiven and loved are going to receive great reward in the age to come. Right? In fact, the reality of Scripture warns against places of authority. Right? We studied last week in our Bible study, let not many of us become teachers. Why? Because teachers will incur stricter judgment. What's the point here? The tendency for humanity is the more authority we get, we tend, we more, the more we tend to abuse it. What's my point? From God's perspective, staying out of authority can actually be a great blessing, right? But from a worldly perspective, it looks like it looks like abuse. Okay? Does that make sense? There's a lot more I could go into this, but this is an important topic. I would encourage you, this is something you know that you wrestle with your heart. Seek after the Lord to guide you and help you understand the wisdom of his word. Okay, the second thing I have to say on this is authority is different from leadership. Women can absolutely be great leaders. Okay, women can absolutely be great leaders. My spiritual father always says that his wife is a far greater leader than he is, right? Outside of the home, I believe women can absolutely hold, be authoritative heads, but I believe inside the home, I think the scripture is pretty clear, okay? All right, last bit. Number three, parents are committed to children. Okay, we touched on this a couple weeks ago. Children are a blessing from the Lord. You should have kids. You should have lots of kids. Yes, I think that the more kids you have, the better it is from God's perspective. The original mandate to to man was be fruitful and multiply, right? Fill the earth and subdue it. I think in God's eyes, it's obedience to have many children. That's why we want to have one more kid. If we can, Lord, give us grace. Okay, guess what? Kids are hard. They're really hard. They drive you crazy. But what's this whole thing about? If you submit to the process of the hardship, it forms your character. Why do we have so many people with weak character today? Because there haven't been fashion in the furnace of family, right? They've had freedom to leave their families and to be be independent on their own. They don't know how to love people in committed contexts. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you. I think that families are a grace for us to become mature in him, right? It it forces you to be mature. It forces you to deal with your arrogance and your issues. When when your kid is driving you crazy, you're like, Jesus, help me. Change me, God. It forces you to become a loving person. It forces you to think outside of yourself. It forces you to recognize that your stupid ambitions are, 
right, to be rich and famous or whatever are stupid compared to being a father in the life of a child, being a mother in the life of a child. Right? This, from the kingdom's perspective, is so glorious and amazing. And guess what? You know who else's perspective is amazing? Your children's. From your children's perspective, there's no more important person in the whole earth than you. There's nobody else that's more important. Brothers and sisters, I want to lovingly challenge you here. God has put it inside of our hearts. You know what his desire is for you? His desire is for you that you would have a thriving, happy family. Oh, he wants that for you. He wants you to have a wonderful family. That's his desire. But it's not easy. We saw the statistics before. It's not easy. Why? Because to have a great family will force you to deal with all the defects of character in your heart. It'll force you to deal with it. It'll force you to deal with the reality that it's hard for you to love your wife sometimes. That it's hard for you to love your kids in certain ways. That it's hard for you to choose them instead of your own ambitions. That it's hard. He wants to go play catch again. Not again. It's hard. But I want to lovingly tell you, it will radically change your priorities in such a way into the things that God honors. You understand how this works? God has designed the family to make you into a person who knows how to love. Apart from the family, you don't need to learn how to love deeply. right? You can use people. You can enjoy them for a while, and as soon as they get hard, you can kick them to the curb and find another person. And that's how much of the world lives. They, they don't know how to have real intimacy in their lives. Brothers and sisters, but that's not how it is to be for us. We forge true love. This is what it means by lasting fruit, brothers and sisters. What are the things that will last in eternity in God's perspective? It's real acts of love. This is what God's looking for. And family is the place where we forge this. We forge that kind of character. We learn how to really commit and love people. We learn how to really deal with our weaknesses. We learn how to really forgive in a deep way. How to say again. Again, let's try again. We can do this. God can give us grace. And you have really hard times. And in those times, you're tested and you come together again. Brothers and sisters, it is not easy. It is so difficult. But I tell you, all things are possible for those who believe. And I'll tell you, my family has been through really difficult times. But God has brought us through them all. I, I, I've been telling my accountability. I have accountability with my own group of friends, I tell them this past year has been for me one of the most enjoyable years of my life because of my family. I've enjoyed my family so much this past year, right? And it's not because I was naturally like that. It's because God has been changing me and changing my character and helping me to see things I never saw before and forcing me to deal with weaknesses in my heart. Brothers and sisters, family is the most glorious thing from God's perspective. From the world's perspective, it's just in the way of your dreams. From the world's perspective, it's just in the way of your career ambitions. I want to lovingly challenge you. Parents must prioritize their children. And guess what? You can start now. How do you start now? By disciplining your sexual life. It really is. It sounds, it's, it sounds so far apart, but look, the way that you discipline yourself sexually is how you love your children today. This is how you 
sacrifice yourself for them. Does that make sense? You're loving your children by maintaining strict sexual boundaries. Why? Because the day will come, if you get married, you will be tempted in your marriage. Okay? It's not like it just happens to those, those, those people. It happens all the time to everybody. You will be tempted in your marriage. And the question is, will you have the wisdom to erect the boundaries that you need to keep your marriage safe? Right? You have to vigilantly guard your marriage. Why? Because you're in a spiritual war. Hear me. You're in a spiritual war. This is what God rebuked me about. I thought it was just magic. Like one day I'm going to find a person that's going to be great. And God's like, no, you're in a spiritual war. Brothers and sisters, God wants you to have a great family. But you have an entire army of demons and of cultural influence trying to destroy you. It's trying to destroy your family. It's trying to tell you, no, you don't need to learn all that character stuff. No, you don't need to forgive. You don't need to reconcile. No, you can just have fun. You can date around. It's okay. Like, just go for it, you know? But all of those things are destroying your ability to have deep character and have a lasting marriage and have children that are protected in the place of family. I lovingly ask you, I challenge you, join in, say amen, say yes, God, I want to honor your standards for marriage and for family. I want to do it your way, God. I want to trust you with this, Lord. And God says that nobody puts their hope in him will ever be put to shame. Last slide. So what do we do? We nurture a thriving family. Do it. Go get married when you're ready. Right? <laughs> Go get married when you're ready. Right? But understand, once you tie the knot, that's it. Right? You get pregnant. That's it. Congratulations. You found the one. Right? Why? Because the, ch the child now is the priority. Right? The child now is the priority. What are we doing? We're giving up our own lives for the sake of others. That's what this whole thing is about. I'm sorry if someone lied to you and said that Christianity is all about you feeling good all the time. No. Sometimes it's about you sacrificing your life for the sake of, the, of those God has commanded you to love. Sometimes about sacrificing your ambitions and your dreams and believing that the dreams of God's heart are in fact greater than the dreams of your heart. Hear me, much of the dreams this, this, this in our culture, the so-called follow your dreams, you could be whatever you want to be, that's all garbage. That is garbage. You can't be all you want to be. Newsflash, you ain't going to be an NBA superstar. Right? Newsflash, okay? Look, that's, you know what it is? It's the, it's the childish dream of an overprivileged people. Right? You, because you're so rich, right? you think, oh, I have no barriers. If you grew up in the slums of India, you wouldn't have such stupid dreams. Making sense? You'd have to reconcile the fact that this is the situation that I'm in. But God says, even in that situation, right, I can bring you into an eternal dream. Right? This is, his, this is God's hope for your heart, right? Nurture a thriving family. Number two, fight for family values. The things like these bills, we're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks, but we have to learn to engage our culture. And number three, be a spiritual parent to the next generation. Worship team, come on up. I want to just take a second. I want to honor those of you who are serving in Epic and Now and, and Jam and all these other ministries. 
I want to honor you guys because in a way you are stepping into the place of spiritual parenting, right? I want to encourage you, don't just see it like it's a service opportunity, right? Like I just fulfill my obligation, I lead a little Bible study and I'm done. No, why don't you parent those kids? Why don't you love them? Why don't you make it your ambition? God, give me a supernatural love for them, God. Lord, I pray, help me to love them and to disciple them in your ways, right? If you do that, you'll be entering into the beginnings of what it looks like to be a spiritual parent, right? And I want to encourage you, we can all do that. I think everybody should be discipling somebody. Every Christian should be discipling somebody who's younger or more immature than them. I want to encourage you, if you're not discipling anybody, but you've been walking with Jesus for a while, why don't you just pray and go, God, who could I pour into? Who could I love well, Lord God? Let him put someone on your heart. Start to learn to pour into people. And then it won't feel so weird when you have kids one day, and you're like, oh my gosh, do I have to sacrifice for them? Yes. Yes. And it's a glorious sacrifice. It's worth it. It's worth it. Amen? Let's stand up. I know some of you guys are like, dude, I'm just in college, man. But that's what this whole series is about. This whole series is trying to give you an adult framework to understand the world, right? Why? Because if you don't understand the vision of where you're going, how can you act responsibly now? It's impossible. You have to understand where you're going, right? And by the way, I always say there's no age requirement on marriage. It's an issue of maturity. We got a married couple here. They ain't here today, though. But you can get married here as long as your parents bless it. And God says it's okay. I think there should be a burning in our hearts to be married. I think that's a healthy thing, right? As long as it doesn't become an idol. (laughs) But we have to submit to God's wisdom for our own benefit. Okay, Right now, I want us just to lift our prayers up to the Lord and say, God, make me a man or a woman who can nurture a great family. Right now, in your own words, just start to pray and start to seek the Lord. Say, God, make me a person who can nurture a thriving family, Lord God. This is God's will. He wants to do it for you right now in the name of Jesus. I break off everything that says that's impossible. Right now, in the name of Jesus, I cancel every lie that says I'm too broken. That'll never happen for me. In fact, if you know that's you, you're struggling with that belief. You just feel like you're too broken. You'll never be able to have a great family. I want to invite you up. God wants to break that lie off of your mind today. He wants to cut that thing off. No, all things are possible for those who believe. It's not your brokenness that's in the way. It's our lack of belief. If we knew the power of God, then we'd go, God, I know you could do it. Lord, have your way in me. If that's you, just go ahead and come up and we're just going to pray for you.